Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. I'm often asked by product managers on their journey to product master what books they should be reading. I have a new one to recommend. It covers a broad perspective, helpful to less experienced product managers all the way to those who are leading other product managers. It covers how to think like a product manager, how to have influence in your organization, several specific tactics that extend from idea all the way through product launch, and a plan for structuring your career growth along with other valuable resources. The book is The Influential Product Manager, and it was written by our guest, Ken Sandy. Ken has over 20 years of experience in technology product mastery. He served as VP of Product Management at online education companies Masterclass and Lynda.com, and is currently an advisor for startup and scale-up companies. And remember, as you listen to the discussion, if you hear anything you want to go back to, or you want an easy way of sharing the insights with your colleagues, just go to the everydayinnovator.com slash 304. You'll find a detailed summary of everything we discuss, along with a one-page action guide to help you take action immediately on what you're hearing. Now, let's talk with Ken. Ken, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. I'm looking forward to it, Chad. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very glad we could connect. I'm very impressed by your book. We'll talk more about that. Thanks. So a book that you wrote this year, The Influential Product Manager, putting a couple decades of experience uh, as a product manager, leading product management teams, coaching product management groups, you know, helping companies with product management. But I came across something in your bio before we get in, into the book mm-hmm. that really fascinated me. Uh, you know, One of my hats in life is, is university professor. And I saw that you put together the first product management course for the School of Engineering at the University of California. And I'm glad to hear anything about that, but I'm really curious how the engineering students, that I used to be one of those too, how the engineering students responded to that course. Oh, great. Well, very interesting question. I mean, this this class was initially a pilot and we tried it out on a small group of, of engineering students, actually specifically within the Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology in at UC Berkeley. And the the response has been just overwhelmingly great. The engineering students, I think they there was a certain type of engineering student that really responded very positively to it because they they wanted to be able to bring their their skills to to their to, to bear on problems to solve. They were interested in entrepreneurship and interested in innovation. What surprised them was that we didn't just teach this to engineering students. And so we brought together a basic teaching project in project teams. Uh, we recruit students from all over campus. We actually limit the number of engineers in the, in the class hmm. to below 40% and bring in business students, design students, the odd MBA, some master students and people as far as field as like pu- public policy. And we kind of bring them all together, which creates the kind of real diversity that you will actually find in real product teams in, in business. This really has created an interesting learning journey for you know, engineers in particular. The surprising thing I hear, we get them to write a reflection at the end of, uh, end of the class mm. about their perceptions coming in and kind of what they learned. One of the things that really comes out a lot in, in the reflection is 
that surprising discovery of how much people really matter in the process of building products. You can have the technology, you can have an idea, but really understanding the context, understanding the, the customer you're building with, and then working in these cross-functional teams with just unique perspectives on the world and different skills to bring, and then creating those team environments is, uh, is what they uh, either enjoy very, very much, or sometimes it doesn't go so well, and they're like learning for the first time about what it takes to actually build trust and uh, collaborate together when you have very different uh, opinions. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. I, I was not aware, uh, well, I didn't look at the background of this very much, but that notion of having the cross-functional team by bringing in the different uh, students, different measures, different degrees, that's fascinating, right? And, and creating that collaboration that we want to see in innovation too, where you have different disciplines interacting, that's often where meaningful innovation takes place. Absolutely. So very interesting. My local university, University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, Dr. Trey Bolt created this program called the Bachelors of Innovation. And it's fascinating to me because it's in the School of Engineering and Computer Science, but they bring in on the upper level courses, they bring in a business professor and co- they co-teach each of those courses with a business professor. So the students are always getting that kind of business perspective as well. And I just, I love hearing about these programs. So thank you for sharing that and for doing that work there at University of California. No problem. It's, it's been just a real, real thrill. It's really kept me on my toes too. I think I've learned as much from the students as, as they've learned from me. That's the great thing about teaching. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so your book, The Influential Product Manager, starts out by telling us kind of how to act and how to think like a product manager, which is very important. And it also shares a lot of detailed tactics and strategy for being a successful product manager and leading a product management team and leading product managers. Lots of good depth in there. The uh, just, just for listeners, just an early praise to encourage people to check out your book, number of additional resources that you provide in the forms of templates and case studies and examples was very impressive. And thank you. Uh, the, the, the book could take, you know, easily take the form of a, a course that it's, you know, very, a, a lot of depth there. So just very impressed with the number of resources you, you have assembled. And it sounds like they came out of your two decades of experience, right? In, in doing this work. Exactly. And I definitely wanted to write something that you could take away something very practical around any aspect of how to be influential mm-hmm. in your role at any point of the, of the development lifecycle or any kind of relationships that you were having or anything from how to go about prioritizing work all the way through to what kind of metrics you should be choosing and then try to get specific enough that you had a very strong starting point as a product manager to figure out like what, what to do next. And so I like to think of it as a, as a pretty good reference for you to uh, be able to refer to as well as give mm-hmm. you that kind of overall perspective of what an influential product manager really does in, in, in their business. Yeah. And there's a good maturity model in there and uh, some other resources you provide for that to kind of track your own progress, right? And create a plan for yourself to mature mm-hmm. as a product manager. And I, I noticed that you use the same phrasing that uh, we always talk about on this podcast, right? Which is helping product managers be product masters. And you talk about, you know, mastering the, the art and skills of product management. For specific tactics, I kind of want, want to dive into the kind of the middle of the book with you. And we do spend a fair bit of time on this podcast talking about customer-led or customer-driven product management and responding to customers. 
And you have some good details about discovering what customers need, right? And, and how do we uncover those unmet needs they may have? Can you take us through some of that about discovering customer needs? Well, I'll start, I'll start by saying that one of the things that's, that is just so important is how, how important it is for product managers to not outsource the most important mm. part of their job. And I just see this time and time again, I'm shocked just the level of, of or lack of customer engagement that many product managers have. And it is just uh, so important to, to own that and to actually get sort of in the driver's seat, in the front, you know, front seat, really a firsthand experience, spending time with, with your customers, with your market. But, but Ken, that, that, that's what we have the sales team for. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. I hear that all the time. Or, oh, we've got this customer research or this great market report or, or I'm too busy. I hear mm-hmm. that a lot too. Look, uh, the, 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 the bottom line is your job as a product manager is not to build the product right. It's to build the right product. Mm-hmm. And how are you going to know unless you actually spend that time immerse in your customer, potential customer's world and really uh, understand and discover problems to solve and then what solutions are most appropriate to solve those, those problems. So just a, a couple of key takeaways from, from the, you know, this uh, discover theme within the book. And then I'll talk a little bit about you know, sp- some one or two like specific models. First of all, value both qualitative and quantitative research and don't don't overlook the importance quantitative will often help you find a market opportunity give you some trend in the market or trend in the data show you what customers are actually doing in your product but it's the qualitative that will often give those little nuggets of insight about what the underlying root causes or the root needs really are and those are where i found i've had breakthrough ideas on entirely new things that we could be doing to solve customer mm-hmm. problems. So just re- over, over relying on just the numbers or, the, or looking at the trends and, and obsessing over that is, is not enough. And so discovery really is this process of kind of getting into the data, understanding, going back out into the market, talking it through and sort of uh, going between those two things and, and, and doing that over time. This is another important thing is, don't make it harder than it needs to be. I go into some detail here about if you think about this as going to be a, a big group that you need to put together with all these artifacts you're going to build, with all these interview questionnaires you're going to put together and it's going to take weeks, by definition, it's going to be more costly. You're going to do it less often mm-hmm. and you're going to uh, have it kind of a one shot at it rather than kind of incrementally learning new little things by simply saying, I'm going to do this early, I'm going to do this often, I'm going to do it cheaply, I'm going to use whatever artifacts I have, and I'm going to focus on a few hypotheses at a time, and I'm going to meet as many customers over a longer period of time. So over time, I learn lots of little things that add up to, to really big things. And mm-hmm. when, you, when you switch the paradigm to making it easier, uh, a lot of really amazing things uh, will happen. I had one client I was working with, they hadn't delivered a product in, well, they hadn't delivered a major release around their product in two years. They were always internally debating priorities, design choices, and sort of going around in the circle. And there was a real resistance to do more 
customer like outreach because it was considered to be very expensive and you had this chicken and egg problem. Don't we need a product to be able to test? Well, mm. we need to build a product to test the product then figure out what the product should be. I hear that a lot too. So we just agreed to move to more of this lean frequent model. We did a, a user testing Thursday afternoon. We invited five users in. It was a consumer product, so that was fairly easy. And each, each session, we might get of the five, four of them would turn up and three would be actually good customers to be te- talking with. So that's a pretty good hit rate. And then we would just work through whatever the issue of that week maybe was. And in three months, we'd talk to 50 users. Mm-hmm. And in that three months, we learned just so, so much. And the culture of the, t- of the team changed and the, the confidence in making decisions changed. So that's, a, that's a, a really important piece of it. Ken is sharing some great insights with us. And that is especially important because product managers are huge levers in organizations, having large impacts on revenue as they create value for customers. To increase their effectiveness even further, organization asked me to take them through the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. This is a nine-week journey where we meet virtually for 75 minutes each week, getting everyone on the same page, improving performance. I recently started two new groups, and it's amazing at how quickly they're already gaining synergies, discussing and aligning their organization strategy to their product work. If you want to help your product management colleagues and together move towards product mastery, go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM to learn more. I would love the opportunity to work with you. Now, let's get back to the insights with Ken. Let me go back into a couple of things yeah. that you said here. You know, one, don't make it hard, harder than it is. I remember my, my background is primarily software product management, and I've had the most enjoyable conversations with people in other industries, right? And one was with a building materials person. Uh-huh. And one of his habits was if he had to go to the big box hardware store and you know, pick something up on a Saturday morning, he would go hang out where in the row where his products were and just watch people, you know, observe them looking at the different labels, pick, right. selecting something. And then just very easily say, hey, do you mind asking me asking a question? I mean, why did you pick that one? Right. Yeah. And just engaging them in a couple of minutes of conversation to just get simple, wonderful insights. Yeah. Right? Look, this is my, my favorite approach. And just quickly back on the class that I, we were talking about before at UC Berkeley, that is one of the assignments. You go out as a team the five of you and mm-hmm. go and find people to talk to. Mm-hmm. And you, you, some, some of the students, and I, I should mention, they pick products to actually prototype and they have a semester to prototype. So it's very hands-on. Some of them have picked things like a healthcare products and they suddenly need to go to hospitals to sort of observe what's going on in the hospital. And of course they need permission and talk to some of the nurses and they've got to be very, very, very thoughtful. Others are, are suddenly faced with, we had one needing to, they're building a product for, for people with Alzheimer's. I was like, how are we going to invite you to understand more about that world? Mm-hmm. Well, they did it. And the, by far, the, that particular assignment, if you will, is one of those that is often the most thrilling and unique that they report back on, that they've learned so much about just talking, talking to the customers and just asking those simple questions and observing their world that you can actually tell because they come back pumped. Right. You know, just wanting to like, I can solve these problems. Is so they, They've developed that empathy. So that example you just gave, like, we need to do more of it. I had a, a PM who 
she was she was in charge of our mobile app and I was having a lot of trouble getting her out of the building. And I was just like, go to a coffee shop and just show them the app. Everyone wants this is an online learning product. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to learn. Like be, you'd be surprised. People are so generous with their time and they want to help you. Right. Uh, sometimes, of course, they don't want to criticize. So you've got to kind of try to make sure that they feel comfortable there. But it, it is really a... a, a a very, very easy, much easier thing to do than I think we, we realize. It is. There doesn't have to be that much resistance to it. Um, one of the UX people I know, and others do this too, you know, literally does go to the Starbucks all the time with the little <laughs> sign on the table that says, you know, free cup of coffee for five minutes of your time, right? And just to Brilliant. discuss, so, hey, here, here's here's an app we're thinking about, you know, just want your feedback on it, right? Yeah. The other thing you mentioned was talking kind of about the culture, right? That, you know, how it changed over those three months, seeing those 50 mm. customers. I find this also so often in organizations that they don't have a proper customer focus as they're developing products and just getting in touch with that can change so much for the organization. Did you see other kind of you know, consequences or, or fallout of, of that, how they started acting differently? Yes. One of the, well, one of the examples was they got a backbone with the, with the founder. Mm. And he'd started telling him when he was wrong because they were, they were emboldened by mm-hmm. actually having this data, even yeah. if it was anecdotal. And so there was this pushback that started to happen that I thought, well, that's, that's, that's pretty transformative because now what actually happened was it might sound scary, but actually the founder was like, oh, and he started building confidence in them. Like they're actually got context to make good, better decisions. All the stuff that I had to do before, because I was worried, they're beginning to, to do it better and they're going to make mistakes. But, but that was, that was definitely one thing. The second thing was, and this is an important element of, of, of what I recommend you think about is because we were doing this and actually getting customers to come in, which is not always possible, but mm-hmm. the bottom line of what I'm about to say is always possible. We actually started to expose not just the product managers, but other members of our entire company. And that included obviously some of the engineers who, if you've ever seen an engineer, like see someone struggling with something that they've built, it's going to get fixed, right? It's, it's, it's magic to sort of have this empathy sort of permeate the organization to, to, to ensure that you're, you're, you know, it's, you aren't just doing it and then trying to be the messenger back to the organization, share that experience broadly. And it may feel uncomfortable at the start because, you know, engineers' hands are off the keyboard. Surely that's not as valuable right? <laughs> or, you know, it's random, but asking the finance person to come and sit in on the interview, that seems weird, but guess what? It, it, it starts creating language in the organization, a sense of purpose and just the commonality. And now it doesn't always go perfect. Mm-hmm. I definitely had my fair share of highly resistant folks to that. I've also run into a pushback on the informality of that process. And sometimes it doesn't, it's not appropriate for your culture. Maybe if you're saying a in a enterprise setting, it takes a little bit more planning. You don't want to wander in and ask random questions to a potential prospect and destroy a sale, right? So you have to be appropriate to your organization, mm-hmm. but earning that trust and sort of showing the value through you, that it can drive empathy and better decisions, it, 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 it's pretty impactful. 
So a, a lot of value there in spending time with customers in some fashion. And, and you talk about specific tools in the book for doing so. I mean, I, well, well, I'm going to leave yeah. listeners having to get your book for that one, because you also spent a fair bit of time talking about specification. And interesting to me, you talked about that before you talked about requirements um, and use stories and like. So I wanted you to kind of just take us through that thread of going from, okay, we, we understand some insights from the customers. We think we know what their problem is. We've even validated our approach mm-hmm. to solving that problem. Now we have to make this real, right? So we have to get something into engineering's, engineers' hands to make this real, which a lot of us would call a specification. Right. Well, I've, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek with using the word specification. And it's been interesting because I've done a couple of talks about specifications and people are like, surely specifications are done away with. Isn't that like writing a business case? How old school of you? And, and I'm kind of co-opting this term because I still see a need for, quote, I'm doing air quotes now, specifications. <laughs> and I don't mean specifications in the traditional form. The, the unhelpful, very thick document with market requirements, they're largely unread, they're very prescriptive, there are lots of unvalidated assumptions inside of them, and then they often lead to those requirements, which are then neatly, neatly sorted into must-haves, should-haves, and nice-to-haves, and, of course, you get maybe 10% of any of that. But there's a big gap between understanding the customer and having that sort of discovery process. And I will be very clear, these are not linear in any sense. These are parallel processes that have to happen constantly. There's a big gap between, say, an understanding of those those needs and then being able to encapsulate that into something useful enough for your team to be able to go away and actually build a solution for. Mm-hmm. And I, I still see a, a, a need for that solid foundation of a shared understanding of the problem that you're trying to, to address or the need you're trying to address and the kind of constraints and the, 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 the measures of what will success look like to be able to be shared. Now, what I mean by that is knowing where you're, where you're starting from, you know, what information do we know, what do we not know, how do we know we're on track, what are we trying to kind of validate towards, do we all agree, agree of what success is, and so I, I find the modern spec in my, in my terminology is more about contextualizing the customer problem or opportunity at hand. If you think about like you're in this distinct phase of problem space, you're not yet in solution space. Mm-hmm. You actually have to actively work away any language about like the solution that we're going to build or the technology we're building. You've got to immerse yourself in that problem space first. And that's really challenging, right? Every day. Both, both of us went to engineering school. And I still, it's easy for me to jump to the solution. It's like, okay, I understand the problem enough, but let's go, right? That's a, and that's yeah. what engineering teams want to do. Yes, absolutely. And it's, and it's very natural. We're problem solvers as, mm-hmm. at heart. And we, we, you know, we're using our special skills for the purposes of good. And we want to go in and actually get there quickly. And there's a sense of, of urgency and ownership for it. It's, it's very natural. But the, 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 there's two things that, are, that you have to guard against. The first is if you don't actually have, if you think you've got an understanding of the problem, you probably don't, and you're potentially working from the wrong problem. So you actually have to kind of layer up first to zoom out and make sure that I've understood the true problem. Case in point, 
there might be a problem with the tool that you've launched into your customer and there, there's reporting kind of problems with the, the process and it's, and it, you know, the, I can't use this tool. If you go and just say, okay, there's a problem with this tool and zoom in and try to solve that, you might miss the opportunity to actually completely reinvent or even do away with a business process that shouldn't exist in the first place. So coming back up and understanding you're working on the, same, the right problem and then coming back down into the solution space, you may end up with a, in a very, very different place. You may, may end up with a, with a dramatically different solution. The second thing that is much more subtle, and that is if you don't spend the time creating the context, that the shared context, you risk actually demotivating your team because there's going to be questions about, is this valuable? Why am I putting my life, you know, my time behind this? Is this, why are you prescribing to me a particular solution? There's ways I could have like got involved with that. So there's this sort of disempowerment and question that may hang over anything that you, you bring to the team uh, because you haven't properly contextualized it and being really sure about like, this is what, this is why this is important, why this matters. The second thing is you may actually also have misalignment with your stakeholders about how important this is and what success looks like. And you can get to the end and I've, I've seen it, I've done it, launched a product, look at that, great success. And you roll it out and then your stakeholders are saying, wait a minute, that's not what I asked for. And I'm not happy with these results at all. And you're like, if only we had pre-agreed what success looked like. Right. And so that's why you want to stay in this space for long enough in a structured way. So you're making sure that you're clear on your goals, clear on the outcomes. You're setting yourself up to actually inspire your team or at least empower them. And, or if not that, at least focus them. Uh, providing a level of, of clarity about what you're trying to tackle. And with your stakeholders, you're trying to elevate the conversation. And this is a great technique, by the way, elevating the, the conversation away from their preconceived ideas of what the solution should be. Because I don't know about you, but every time I talk to a stakeholder and they've got a new need, they present it in form of a solution, not a problem. <laughs> this is a way, again, of getting them back into that, that problem space. And you actually head off later conflict and disappointment by being a little clearer, a lot more clearer, actually, about what you're actually trying to solve for. You're not going to drive consensus. You're not going to have everyone happy. Don't, don't try that. You, but you're going to set yourself up for, for a greater chance of success by using this specification kind of as, as kind of I, I define it um, as being more about describing the problem. Okay. We probably need an example. What, what, what form does that specification take then? What, what, is this still a document I have in my head, right? Defining the problem, trying to communicate what success does look like, maybe success criteria. What are we putting together? So you can develop whatever temple, there, the template. There is a template actually in the resources that you were talking about. So mm-hmm. please go ahead and download that. I, there are five really critical elements that any template, whatever you use and whatever spec you go with should include. The first of those is actually a written hypothesis. Uh, a, a written hypothesis ensures that you're articulating your, your goal in terms of a, a, a learning outcome that you're wanting to actually arrive at. You're turning kind of any of those 
potential solution things in into actually why are you why are you actually going down this path there's clarity in its simplicity it keeps the solutions open it reduces your mm-hmm. overconfidence in that it in, it sort of leads you down more into this is something i need to validate and learn interestingly it can also avoid that sort of emotional attachment to a specific idea like i've said this has to work i've gone and pitched this idea it has to work because now my reputation's online more into huh we think this is this we think this is what's going to happen we've written it as a hypothesis if we're wrong that's okay we learn something so that's the that's the that's the, the first thing the the second is being clear from the outset of what of quantifying what the measurable outcome you're you're striving for so i recommend that you articulate what what north star you're shooting for for this particular initiative now quickly i'm not talking about this being across your entire product and there's one template forever and i'm not also talking about using the template for every single like minor like tweak to your product there's some zone in the middle where it's where it's it's likely to be an an initiative that requires this deep thinking mm-hmm. before before and it's going to take up some resources but you do this around any kind of new 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 idea or new epic if you will the 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 measurable outcome therefore should be say this is this is the metric within the business that we're trying to actually drive for or, or this is the customer centric metric we're actually trying to drive forward and then you might actually because of that that sometimes is quite lagging and very hard to measure and maybe there's a whole lot packaged in that that it may not be mm. purely because of the product that you're building driving that metric forward and therefore it's very hard to measure impact then develop some more like smart leading indicators things you can measure more quickly to find those as well these might be an example might be imagine you're trying to improve the repeat usage of your product it might be actually hard to really unless you truly a b test that over a long long period of time to really pick apart like is your feature actually really helping you but you can actually measure like leading indicators like do people indicate do people engage with this new feature are they are they discovering it are they using it is there a high percentage usage rate do they come back and use it again over a smaller time window and then you might actually be measuring some like nps or customer satisfaction metric you might also have some counter metrics so do i notice problems where yeah. i launch something and actually the this metric goes down and i don't want it to go down so it's it's those sorts of things being clear on the metrics i also often write those in terms of success criteria so uh, example a uh, product that an initiative that i was doing was an onboarding an onboarding flow and right now from basically sign up to first point of value in this product it was taking an ordinate amount of time like about uh, uh, four days for right. users to actually reach a point where they go huh i've actually I, this is a valuable product to me and of course that's not good with lots of dropout so the success criteria was very simple onboarding of new customers takes half the time over it currently does right that was it that's what we wanted to to strive for now a lot goes in there but now we really had something to anchor anchor around third thing is being clear on the constraints in a useful way so what i mean by you don't want it to be so so open uh, bounded that you can go in you're 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 trying to solve 
a, a very, very big problem. Try to actually limit it more to, well, why don't we just solve it for this particular audience first or in this particular market first? Or maybe this is something we want to roll out ultimately across multiple products, but let's solve it for just this, this one, one, one product. It helps you tight, by, by tightening your focus, kind of uh, leading into a little bit more of a, of, a, of a smaller, if you will, minimum viable product that you can actually then run with first. So articulating those, those constraints are important because they basically rule out things that you don't have to do in your first version, if you will, and make, make sure that you're not oversolving. Uh, quality is another thing I often find oversolved unless you specify this does not need right. to work at scale or we're only going to Good. like beta this for six months. So it only needs to be a small subset of customers. Four number is being very clear on the, the, your uh, jobs to be done or your user stories for the target customer. And then finally, within your, within your specification, sharing potential solution approaches is fine, but this is where you leave it. It's like, here's the work we've done so far in terms of potentially how we might go about solving it but it's really supposed to be fodder for what then leads into a much more uh, collaborative approach to actually come up with, with the solution. Now, if you encapsulate that, you've got a pretty good understanding of what problem you're trying to solve. Thanks for taking us through that. The, the, the way that your description of that specification ties into my experience is it has always been a core principle of mine to get the engineering team close to the customer as possible and have them understand the problem that they're building for. And everything that you went through to me sounded like we're helping everyone involved understand the problem. Exactly. Very good. Okay, we, we could have a good time continuing talking about, about these uh, these things in many more details. There are a lot of good details, and as I said, good resources in the book for uh, listeners as well. We'll talk about getting your hands on that in just a moment, Everyday Innovators. But first, you know I like an innovation quote. Ken, what did you bring for us? <laughs> I actually really like quotes from James Dyson, mm-hmm. the in, uh, inventor of the Dyson vacuum cleaner. It was very innovative in, in its time. And if you actually read a lot about like the process he went through, it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. My favorite quote, we always want to create something new out of nothing and without research and without long, hard hours of effort. But there is no such thing as a quantum leap. There is only dogged persistence. And in the end, you make it look like a quantum leap. What I love about that is that it really gets to that innovation isn't just some idea. It's actually really the passion and the persistence mm. that you, you have to pursue that idea and the deep connection to the customer that you, you seek to serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be absolutely committed to grinding out whatever you're trying to innovate around over the long haul. And you just never, you, you, know, you know you're there in an innovation when it feels elegant, maybe even simple and potentially really obvious, but suddenly your customer never knows how they ever lived without it. Right. But that process of going to, to reach that is just, is, is tough. And that's what innovation to me really is. And what, what excites me about that is anyone can do it. If you've got that passion and you're prepared to, to, to apply yourself, it's not the ideas person and it's not some brilliant flash or, you know, I, I've got to go sell a VC on something. It's really, it really comes down to uh, being willing to risk failure, 
get into trying things and and really having that deep connection with the customer. That's what I like, like about his quotes. Yeah, it, it ties in nicely back to that first question I asked you about that engineering course, right? It's it's that cross-discipline set of people that are interacting, doing things probably out of their comfort zone, trying to talk to customers and, and, and get data with, with each other, new information. And they're helping each other think differently. Yeah. Um, and they're doing the hard work, right? There's no flashes of genius there. It, it's doing the hard work, sometimes called the messy middle, right? It's just <laughs> slogging through it and making it work. So that's a great quote. Thanks exactly. for sharing that one from Dyson Forrest. Not a problem. Your book, other resources you, you have available, people that want to find out about the work that you do. Um, how can we all do that? Absolutely. Well, obviously, uh, the book is called The Influential Product Manager, how to lead and launch successful technology products. That's available on any any bookstore. It comes in the physical version, a, a ebook, and even an audio book. Although I didn't actually actually do the audio version myself, but consider that a win. <laughs> and then in terms of resources, I've got a ton of resources at influentialpm.com. That website, you'll you'll get resources including tools and templates that are actually referred to in the book, as well as other other uh, tools. There's also plenty of talks and sort of going through various steps that I've applied, and those talks are all recorded there. And there's some thirty or so to give you a sense of of, of how I work. I would be thrilled if anybody would like to. Uh, go to the website and try that out and you can register and and stay in touch and please uh, look me up on LinkedIn, email me. I would be thrilled to hear from your your listeners and answer any questions that they have. That's very kind of you, Ken. You know, we, we were talking before we started recording why I do this podcast right now, it kind of came about. And it is to scratch my own itch to get to talk with interesting people and also to bring value to others. And I also always do, I, I use it, for, you know, as everyone knows, to promote my work too, the RPM experience that I do. And it's very kind when people reach out in response to this podcast and say, hey, I'd like to find out more about that. I'm very, as I said before, impressed with your materials too. Just share for a moment, an, an ideal customer of yours, who is it you would like to be helping? Because hmm. someone might be listening and going, you know, I, I kind of like what Ken shared and maybe he could help us with something. Well, I, I do have a pers- personal uh, vision, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and, and why I'm doing all of this. And that is that I believe that I can scale my impact on the world by helping other product managers drive impact. And so I really am really looking to help any aspiring product manager, any current product manager, or a leader of a product management team wanting to help their team grow. That's, I, I want to really help um, those people be inspired by product management and then approach it in a particular way where it's not just about building a project or chasing the next idea. It's about really understanding people and, and, and being able to work well with people and being sort of deeply in tune and empathetic to the customer. And so anybody who is interested in being a product manager or is a product manager and really wanting to learn their skills, that's, they're, they're, they're the people I want to help. And anybody who works with product managers who want a deeper understanding of what it's like to be a product manager and build empathy for us. That works well too. Good. And more resources at the influential PM.com. 
Correct. Excellent. Ken, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Chad. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters. Find all the details of that discussion with Ken, all the great insights that he shared and links to the resources he shared at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 304. The one-page action guide is also there to help you start taking action now, putting into practice some of the insights. As always, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.